Maine Calling on Demand is made possible in part by Maine Farmland Trust, working with farmers to grow the future of farming and food in Maine. Learn how you can get involved at mainefarmlandtrust.org learn. And by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org. Today on Maine Calling, efforts to save the wild Atlantic salmon. Wild Atlantic salmon, once abundant in every river in the Northeast, are critically endangered. The only remaining population of wild Atlantic salmon is here in Maine. Passionate advocates and scientists have been working for years to boost that population with habitat restoration, hatcheries, dam removal efforts, and education. And it appears that those efforts may be slowly paying off. The numbers are improving. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on Maine Calling, we will learn about the wild Atlantic salmon. What makes them different than other varieties of salmon? Why their population plummeted in the first place? What challenges they face and what people can do to help? Maine's wild Atlantic salmon on Maine Calling. That's just ahead. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Calling. Maine is home to the only native Atlantic salmon population in the country. We're going to learn about this endangered species, what threats that remaining population faces, and hear some success stories for those working to restore these fish in Maine. Joining me for the hour, Daniel Frechette, who is marine resource scientist focused on salmon ecology with the Maine Department of Marine Resources, and John Burroughs, who is vice president of U.S. operations for the Atlantic Salmon Federation. We invite you to join the conversation. What do you want to know about Maine's wild Atlantic salmon and the restoration efforts? You can send an email to talk at mainepublic.org, post a comment on Facebook or Instagram, or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. John, let's start with a little bit of a history lesson. Give us a sense of what the wild Atlantic salmon population is used to look like in America, and then what happened to them? I read that really from the Hudson River north, it was an abundant fish. No, you're absolutely right, Jennifer. And first, thank you for having me on. been really looking forward to having this conversation. You're right. Historically, you know, in you know, the northeastern U.S., Atlantic salmon went all the way to the Hudson. Um, some debate about whether or not they were in the Hudson or not, but they went that far west and as far north you know, in Maine is this, you know, the St. John River, the St. Croix River, and then way further north up to the, the tip of Quebec in, in Labrador. So on the continent, we had a very wide range. And altogether, there was about 1,100 rivers in North America that had Atlantic salmon. And in the U.S., that was roughly about 60 rivers. Um, and the historic runs, you know, were very tremendously. You have a lot of smaller rivers and streams that may have had our self-sustaining run of 50 fish or 100 fish. Then you had our large rivers like the Kennebec, the Penobscot, the St. John River, the Connecticut, that all would have had well over 100,000 adult salmon coming back to them. Um, so some, some pretty significant numbers going back about 400 years or so. Uh, 
John, um, if we could go in a time machine back 400 years, would we would it would it have looked like what we see that that the nature documentaries from Alaska, um, you know, today would would there have been just so many salmon jumping up the rapids and going up these rivers? You you definitely would have seen things like that. A big difference between here and Alaska, though, is Atlantic salmon aren't nearly as prolific as like sockeye salmon or some of those species that number in the tens of millions. Um, but a run of 100,000 salmon on the Kennebec, you would have been able to go to Karatunk Falls or places in the upper river and seen fish, you know, certainly in the hundreds, if not thousands doing that. Um, so, yeah, different scale here, but we would have had that in what we also have here in Maine, which is really important for salmon restoration, is we have a whole suite of other native sea run fish like river herring and American shad. And those species play some of the same ecological roles and niches that those other Pacific salmon did. So collectively, we would have populations of all those sea run fish um, in the tens of millions coming back to Maine rivers. Okay. And so um, I think I interrupted you. What happened? Um, we know that dams happened, um, but that wasn't the only thing, right? Oh, everything, everything happened over the last 400 years. Um, all the changes on the landscape related to timber harvesting and forestry, log drives. You know, as we develop the state for industry and farming and agriculture, we changed the landscape, had big impacts on our rivers. We also overfished salmon and other species during that time. And as we moved into the industrial revolution, you know, we added much larger dams. Um, we then added water pollution and all those things took a toll so that by the early 20th century, a lot of our salmon runs had been wiped out. And actually, a lot of them had been wiped out by the, by the Revolutionary War in parts of New England. And so all of that took its toll over the course of 300 plus years. And now we're left with you know salmon in about eight or nine rivers, all in Maine. Um, and our populations are greatly diminished, which is why they're you know critically endangered. Um, so all of those impacts, all of those activities had a big impact on the population you know, over the course of several centuries. And Danielle, why is it that uh, John said that what's left is in eight or nine rivers in Maine? Why Maine? Why is it that the salmon survived here? Oh, that is a really good question as to why they survived here relative to other states. John, do you have any thoughts on what made our Maine rivers different that we're able to hold I, on to a little bit longer? I, I, I think as a whole rivers further to the north and down east and other places, despite long histories of things like log drives for 200 years in, in dams, we had a lot less dams than places like New Hampshire and Connecticut and other places that lost their salmon in the 1700s. Um, we had some more wild places that you know were less impacted. And, and so we, we were able to have those fish that continue to persist in those places. In addition, by the mid 1800s, we were doing things to try to increase and grow those populations. They were somewhat misguided in some ways, but that's when we developed salmon hatcheries. And that's when we were actually seeing laws, you know, trying to require fish passage at dams um, during that time. So we were fortunate to have had populations down east in Penobscot and a few other places that had a following, had a constituency and had folks trying to do things you know, 200 years ago to keep the populations going. Danielle, tell us what makes a wild Atlantic salmon special. What, how are wild Atlantic salmon different than other salmon? Well, thanks, Jennifer, for having me. Um, 
the a wild Atlantic salmon that has spent at least part of its life growing up in a river has experienced natural selection throughout most of its life. And so when that wild Atlantic salmon goes out to the ocean, it actually can survive a lot better in the ocean than a salmon that was reared, raised in a hatchery up until that, that smolt stage, the stage when it's ready to go to the ocean. Um, they, that natural rearing gives them some kind of selection advantage, some natural selection advantage that allows them to, to come back at, at higher rates than our hatchery reared salmon. John. And, and one thing I, I would also want to add, and this gets beyond just kind of the, the life history of the salmon, but the species, you know, has fascinated, you know, our human cultures, both in North America and Europe going back millennia. And so there's a strong human connection, you know, in Europe and here in North America you know, to the species. Um, it's prominent in mythology in Europe and in the U.S. and Celtic tales, folklore. Um, it's just something that's been part of human culture society going back, you know, about at least 20,000 years. And we see that with cave etchings in France from the Paleolithic period and other stuff. So there's a strong human connection to the species um, that, that you, you really can't separate from. It's amazing life history and it, it's journeys from the headwaters of rivers in the, like in the Kennebec River to Greenland and back, which is just an amazing journey that the fish takes. But it's been really important part of human culture and society as well and lots of traditions on that front. So it's it's a species that touches people in a, in a lot of different ways. Danielle, I want to go back to a little bit what makes them different. Um, to the naked eye, can you tell a wild Atlantic salmon from another salmon? Um, it's pretty hard to tell. Well, in Maine, we have not just wild sea-run Atlantic salmon, we also have landlocked salmon. So landlocked salmon and Atlantic salmon, they're really the same species, but they have one key difference. A landlocked salmon stays in a lake. It doesn't go to sea. A sea-run salmon, um, what we have is our, our, our endangered, Atlant what we consider the Atl endangered Atlantic salmon are our sea-run salmon. They are the, the fish that spend part of their life as a juvenile in the river. Then they go to the ocean and come back much larger to reproduce and, and send the cycle, you know, move the cycle forward. Um, and it is really, really hard to tell the difference between a landlocked salmon and a sea-run salmon. Um, in fact, it's challenging even for, for biologists who've done it for many years. In general, a landlocked salmon is smaller than a sea-run salmon because it didn't go to the ocean where it had access to all those really rich food resources that allow it to grow to a large size pretty quickly. Um, and that's actually one of the key things that we use here in Maine to help protect our endangered sea run salmon is that there is a general law, a length restriction on catching landlocked salmon um, to the, the, there's a maximum size that you can keep in landlocked salmon fishing waters. And that, that size limit is really designed to protect our endangered sea run salmon. And are they, are they genetically the same? Are they the same fish? They are the same species. Um, they could interbreed. In fact, there are places in Canada where you can have landlocked salmon and, and sea-run salmon mating together. All right. Um, uh, is that, I was going to say, is that a problem or is that okay? I mean, you know, as we start to bring down dams and fix culverts and do things, um, 
what does that mean for the future of intermingling? Well, I could jump in. I think, you know, in Maine, we have four native landlocked salmon waters and all four of them, you know, are in places where you had sea run salmon. So, you know, same species, they devolved life histories over time. Um, I would say as a whole, you know, I wouldn't worry too much about that. Some fisheries managers may have concerns and prize landlocked places, but as a whole, I, I wouldn't be too concerned about the species intermingling and interbreeding. So it, it happened here and it happens in lots of places in Canada. All right. Well, one of the reasons we're having the program today is because um, some recent numbers seem seem to maybe be pretty good. And and I want to talk about how we got here and um, how good these numbers really are. So, Danielle, I, I'm going to start with you and ask you to tell us what have those of you who are passionate about Atlantic salmon, Atlantic wild salmon, been doing over the years to improve the population? Um, give us a summary of some of the some of the projects underway and that have been underway for years. Sure. So our endangered sea run salmon here in Maine are, are co-managed by, by four entities, the Penobscot Nation, the Department of Marine Resources, NOAA Fisheries, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And those four entities work really closely together in collaboration with our NGO partners um, to do a lot of different things that can help salmon recovery. So at DMR, one of our uh, kind of key roles is stocking salmon onto the landscape, putting juvenile salmon from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Con Conservation Hatchery Program into the wild so that they can grow up in the rivers, go to the ocean, and then come home to Maine rivers. And some of our, our biologists have developed some really innovative techniques for helping us get salmon into the rivers as early as possible. Because as I said earlier, salmon that spend more time growing up in rivers do better when it's time for them to go to the ocean. And so um, my colleague, Paul Chrisman, took a technique to hydraulically plant eggs into the gravel. So taking the salmon pretty much at the earliest we can possibly put them out as an egg, putting them into an artificial red in the river so that they can incubate in the river and really kind of face those river conditions from that egg stage on. Um, and this technique has been so successful here in Maine that it's showing promise elsewhere. And actually Paul and one of our, some of our other colleagues were, went out to California to teach some salmon conservation biologists in California how to use this technique to help with their recovery programs. Mm. When you said, uh, did you say putting the eggs directly in a red in the river? What do you mean by that? Yeah, so a, a red is what we call it a salmon nest. So a female salmon in the fall digs a nest in the gravel. She, she does all the work. She uses her tail to create this hydrostatic pressure that kind of kicks all the gravel and fine sediments up. And then she can deposit her eggs into that pocket and then cover them back over. And she'll do this a series of times, kind of make a series of these little nest pockets. And all together, we call that a red. And I think it really comes from that kind of long uh, tradition with salmon in Scotland. It's one of those Scottish words that's been adopted for, for salmons, salmon around the world. All right, well, Danielle, um Put into perspective what the recent counts. Um, I know that there are a couple places where you count salmon as they um, spawn. Um, what what are the recent counts telling us? And is it as good of news as, as people are hoping? 
That's a great question. So, so to answer the first part, I want to kind of describe how we count salmon at, at DMR, because that's one of our other things that we do a lot of. Um, we have a few places in the state where salmon come back to a trap, and we can physically count them either as we handle them going through the trap or as they swim past a camera. And those are places like um, Lockwood Dam on the Kennebec, Milford Dam on the Penobscot, uh, Cherryfield Dam on the Narraguegas River. But most of the places in Maine, Maine is huge. We have miles and miles and miles of river. And so the way that we, we try to assess how many salmon are coming back to our rivers is doing something called spawning counts or, or red counts. So we go out in a canoe or on foot and we actually go down the river and we count each one of those reds that we find. Um, and then with some math, we can calculate the number of salmon that we can estimate based on how many reds are observed. The numbers for 2023 are in the process of being finalized. Those 2023 numbers will come out as final numbers after the Atlantic Salmon Assessment Committee meets in March. Um, but the preliminary number from Milford Dam this year was 1,570 fish, um, which is kind of on par with last year. Um, and for the last 10 years, that's a pretty decent number. Um, but when it comes to salmon numbers, we really need to be careful about shifting baselines because John talked about, you know, 400 years ago, there may have been 100,000 salmon in the Penobscot River. And every year there's natural variability around that, that number, that 100,000. So you might have 500 more salmon one year, you might have 1,000 fewer salmon next year just because of that natural variability in the environment. Now we're hovering around 1,000 salmon in the Penobscot River. So when we see these fluctuations from year to year, it may be more that natural variability that we're seeing. It's just a lot more visible when we're down at a thousand salmon versus if we were at a hundred thousand salmon. So what we look at more is the trend over time. What is the 10-year the average? And for the 10-year average right now, the 2023 numbers are looking to be on the positive side, um, but we'll have to you know, come back to that once this, this year's numbers are finalized. All right. Well, we're talking about wild Atlantic salmon on Maine Culling. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Jennifer Rooks. What to know about Maine's endangered Atlantic salmon and efforts to restore their population with me, John Burroughs, who is VP of U.S. Operations for the Atlantic Salmon Federation, and Danielle Freshette, Marine Resource Scientist with the Maine Department of Marine Resources. You can join the conversation by email, talk at mainepublic.org. You can comment on Facebook or Instagram, or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. Joining us now is Sherry Venno, who is Environmental Planner for Natural Resources with the Holton Band of Maliseet Indians. Thanks so much for calling in, Sherry. Thanks for inviting me, Jennifer. Tell us about the work that you've been doing to try to bring salmon back in your part of the world. Well, we have been doing a lot of, of the work that um, you outlined earlier in terms of, of uh, culvert removal and restoration. We, we do some in-stream restoration where we actually uh, restore habitat that's been removed as a result of logging. So we put back uh, boulders and logs to improve uh, habitat quality in our, in our river. We're on the Meduxtecag River and the Wallistic St. John watershed. 
we spent a lot of time on water quality. We began with water quality because we are in an agricultural watershed, and we had some significant impairment, particularly in the early 90s. I started working for the tribe in, in 1993, and because it was it was pretty severe and pretty obvious, that's where we started. And, and then we moved on from that to, to work on more habitat-related um, restoration work. And, and how is the water quality now, Sherry? In that, in that 30 years, have you been able to improve it enough? Well, a big impairment was uh, actually as a result of uh, a wastewater discharge, and that took some time to resolve, but it eventually did. And some of the eutrophication, the, we had big algal blooms in our river for many years, and those abated significantly after the uh, wastewater was, uh, was treated uh, to remove phosphorus. But we began to see more of the Im- implications of the agricultural impacts uh, from farmland, and spent, we've spent a lot of time working with the local conservation district, the Natural Resources Conservation Service, and, and local farmers on, on supporting uh, um, best practices, best agricultural conservation practices, um, and uh, it has improved significantly. Now, really, we're facing um, water temperature uh, as the significant uh, water quality impairment, and that's... that's, that's uh, as much to do with climate change as anything. It's, it's nothing that we, we can address on our own. <laughs> yeah, you can't work with farmers or a wastewater treatment plan on that one. Um, well, let, just tell us what the story is. Or do you have um, salmon back in the river and, and what kind of numbers and, and what, what would you really like to see in, in the future? Well, honestly, we don't have any salmon up in our system. We have some. Oh, no. Yeah, it's there. Um, so it's it's a big it's a big project that we've undertaken. It's a goal that the tribe established back in in the late 1990s, uh, about the time that the Penobscot River Restoration Project started. We formally established salmon as a restoration goal, and I knew at the time <laughs> that this was uh, going to be a long project um, because, of course, we're in the in uh, a watershed that uh, flows into Canada. And so uh, the fish, <laughs> the salmon and other sea-run fish that come up the river, uh, we, have to, we can't work with Maine to, uh, on that problem. We have to work on, with New Brunswick. And we have the advantage of, of uh, uh, First Nations, Maliseet First Nations in New Brunswick that we can work with, and we have started a lot of conversations with them. And um, they're federal agency partners on work we could do together to restore salmon, but that um, that is a significant challenge. Uh, I should say the, the the good news is there are salmon in the Meduxnikeg on the Canadian side, so they mm. they've, they've made it up here. But um, the news really isn't good um, overall. In 2022, there were 240 fish that returned. I, I hear Danielle saying that you can't look at one number, but that's a pretty low number, uh, and it's a, it's pretty shocking because the numbers were much higher when I first started working for the the tribe, and so it's been a steep and and, and pretty um, catastrophic decline. So we've so we're not sure where we're going here. We are talking to um, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans along with our Maliseet First Nation counterparts and also the Bess Magati in New Brunswick, 
There's an Outer Bay of Fundy Salmon Co-Management and Recovery Committee established in 2022 because of the dire numbers that they saw. And, you know, we are participating. We're hoping to support in whatever way we can. We are looking. Um, we have a big transboundary conversation going that we started in 2016. Again, this is a long project. And, you know, seeing any kind of real impacts on the ground is, is that's that's not even in the cards yet. Oh gosh, really, that's the conversation stages. Yeah. <laughs> well, Sherry, thank you so much for calling in, and good luck to you, and and thank you for the good work that you've been doing for these decades. Sherry Venno, environmental planner for the Holton Band Band of Maliseets. Um, we're going to move on now. Another call in from Don Sprangers. Um, th- those of you in Eastern Maine know that name. He is a board member for the Downey Salmon Federation, president of the Maine Council of the Atlantic Salmon Federation, and he's an award-winning retired high school teacher, science teacher. Um, and I'm just naming a few of the things that you've done, Dan. Thanks for ca- Don. Thanks for calling in. Well, thank you for having me, Jennifer. Uh, we go back a ways. I remember you doing a number of programs and myself using those programs in my education. Oh, uh, gosh. I'm, I, I, that makes me happy to hear. Um, but so tell us tell us how you have rallied students to take this on as their cause. What, what have students done? That is a fantastic question. Uh, it started, it was my first or second year at Washington Academy. And uh, the late Peter Steenstra from U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service entered my classroom and asked me if I wanted to raise uh, salmon in my classroom. So I was one of the first teachers to do Salmon in the Schools program. It's, today it's called Fish Friends Program. And, um, my stu- and Peter told me, he said, yeah, great, you know, hatch out these salmon eggs and develop a curriculum around salmon. Well, that that was the calling, and uh, with my interest in salmon, uh, I fished salmon on the Great Lakes growing up and lived out in Oregon, so salmon was in my blood before I even moved to Maine, and uh, I developed a prize-winning program at Washington Academy around, that focused around sa- salmon, and um, what it did is it took into account um, the the landscape, the agriculture and forestry, the aquatics, rivers, lakes, streams, estuaries, and also um, any any new technologies uh, in all of these different uh, fields. So uh, it was a great, uh, uh, you know, calling for for myself and my students to get involved. Um, Washington Academy is a walking distance from the East Michigan River, and uh, that's actually home for one of the uh, conservation hatcheries of the Downey Salmon Federation. Our other hatchery is on the Pleasant River. So I, I basically say that my classroom was the, wa- the East Machias River watershed. Don, I have to ask you this. Um, we've heard, obviously, just from Sherry, who was so um, discouraging, really, about um, what she's seeing in her part of Maine in Aristic County. Um, is it a better story where you are? Um, I would have to say no. <laughs> it's better because we actually have uh, fish in our rivers. Um, the day that uh, Peter came and dropped off the salmon tank, I asked him, I said, how many, how many adult salmon are there 
in the Eusmachias River coming up this year. He looked at me and shook his head and he said, maybe about six. And uh, my background in genetics said, boy, this is a uphill struggle here to develop a whole population with just six fish returning. So um, I believe we have more than fish, six fish returning now. Um, the efforts of the Downey Salmon Federation have been fantastic in terms of um, the work they've done uh, with the Peter Gray uh, hatchery program. Uh, we've developed uh, or adopted um, hatchery methods from Scotland. And uh, what, we're, what the results we have show that the, the adults that return from the ocean coming back to the river are outperforming better than any other stocking program in the state of Maine. So there are some good things happening. Um, we're, we're starting to move the needle in the right direction. Um, and the nice thing was is that myself and my students have been a part of a lot of what's been talked about today. Mm. Um, there's another organization in the Down East area, uh, Project Share, and they've been instrumental in doing a lot of the river restoration work on the industrial um, lands in the area. So they're involved with the large wood additions, uh, replacing culverts and bridges, and, uh, and uh, doing a lot of habitat um, improvements. And um, I've actually taken students on field trips where we will go to a a problem site, we'll survey the site. Later in the afternoon, we'll go to a construction site where the equipment is actually, you know, doing the work of taking out a culvert and putting in an arch culvert or a bridge. And then the next day, we'll go to a project that was completed the year before. And my students and I would actually do the uh, riparian buffer tree planting on those sites. And we did that for a good many years. <laughs> oh, my gosh, John. Thank you so much for calling in, and thank you for all the work that you've done all these years. John Burroughs wants to say something really quickly before I say, say goodbye. Go ahead, John. <laughs> I was just going to say Don has been an amazing ambassador for Atlantic Salmon Conservation Education for decades. So I just want to take the chance to, to applaud him for his leadership, not just down east, but across the state. Well, Don, thank you for calling in, Don, with the Down East Salmon Federation, also a retired science teacher. Oh, boy, we have so many calls. Uh, we'll start with David calling from Chapman. Hi, David. Go ahead. Hi. Thank you, Jennifer, for taking my call. And hi to Don and Cherry and John and Danielle. Uh, yeah, I just I wanted to talk about our restoration project here in northern Maine, north of Sherry in Holton. We're up on the Aroostook River. And we've got a small hatchery that we operate and are raising broodstock to generate our own salmon eggs. And, and again, these are uh, both Sherry and, and the Holton Band and, and us are different because we, we're international. Our, our fish are Outer Bay of Fundy fish. They're not listed as endangered by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And they come through Canada. So we work largely with the Canadians, just as Sherry mentioned. Uh, but we're, we're trying to raise our own eggs, uh, rather, of the St. John Willowstook stock. And and ideally, down the road, would engage in all the different strategies that have already been discussed, egg planting, uh, and one that wasn't discussed, which is raising fish up 
to adult sexual maturity in a hatchery and putting them in the river to spawn. And while they don't spawn as well as the wild returning fish, they still produce eggs and put them in the river. Um, so, and, and one thing about the aroostook that I think is unique is that we really don't have any significant invasive species like pickerel or bass. And so this niche in the river, uh, the ecological niche for salmon is, is basically empty. And it's a, it's the best rearing tributary of the St. John Willowstook, which is, but I have to always say this, I think it's the largest river between the St. Lawrence River and the Mississippi on the east coast of North America. Mm. So it's a, it's a huge river. And, and the Aroostook is the largest tributary below Grand Falls and was the most productive rearing tributary of the St. John. So we still have that habitat in place to rear fish. Our problem is getting them down to the sea through the dams and then back from the sea up through the, the dams. Well, David, thank you so much for calling and talking about the efforts there. John? Yeah, I would just like to jump in and, you know, agree completely. There's amazing habitat, you know, in the upper St. John, you know, the Aristic on this side of the border, or the Tobik, the New Brunswick side. And, and, and the work that, you know, is happening up there um, has the same challenges we do. It's, we have some amazing habitat in Maine for Atlantic salmon, whether it's the, within the endangered range or outside of that. Um, but we've got major challenges and the biggest one in the fresh water is dams. And it's a whole suite of issues related to dams, but they're largely precluding or inhibiting the ability of salmon to get to headwaters and get back to the ocean on their own, own time frame. And so we've got great habitat and it's a lot of it's very climate change resilient. And if we can get fish, you know, past the dams, you know, to that habitat, there's no reason why we can't have Atlantic salmon persist here well, well into the future. It's just, we've got some major, major issues clogging our rivers in Maine on the St. John River in New Brunswick as well. David, thanks for your call. Um, really quickly, an email here from Wendy, and Wendy is actually speaking for a bunch of people, Danielle, when I asked this question. Why has the state of Maine refused to list Atlantic salmon on the state's own list of endangered species? Do you know the answer to that? That is a really good question, Jennifer. So a state listing of endangered requires a lot of time and resources. And the federal listing under the Endangered Species Act provides really the highest level of protection for Atlantic salmon. There's not a huge amount in terms of protection or the types of resources that would come to Maine to help us recover Atlantic salmon with a state listing. The Atlantic salmon is listed as, as a species of greatest need under our state wildlife action plan. It also receives um, protection under some DEP regulations as well. And so with, we really feel that the, our staff time is really best spent actively engaging on the ground in the actions that are going to help us bring salmon back um, from the brink of extinction. We are talking about wild Atlantic salmon on Maine Calling. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Jennifer Rooks. You're listening to Maine Calling. Our topic today, the critically endangered wild Atlantic salmon. Joining us, Danielle Frechette with the Maine Department of Marine Resources and John Burroughs with the Atlantic Salmon Federation. You can join our conversation at 1-800-399-3566. Send a brief email to talk at mainepublic.org 
or post to Facebook or Instagram. Calling in now Josh Reut, who is Senior Conservation Scientist with the Nature Conservancy in Maine. Josh, tell us about some of the work you've done with road stream crossings. Wow, thanks, Jennifer, for uh, bringing me in and um, and sort of old home week with everybody on this call. It's great. It's a small world of people working on salmon and other sea-run fish in the state of Maine. And one of the issues that we've all grappled with over time is is getting these fish into their headwaters, the smaller streams, which are not always blocked by big dams. Sometimes they're little dams, but even more so are thousands and thousands of culverts. So what's kind of cool is that we were able with uh, – Jed Wright and Melissa Laser and folks at uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and DMR um, and Maine Forest Service and Natural Resource Conservation Service, lots of folks, Maine Audubon, helped do a statewide survey of every road stream crossing so we could see where are the constrictions to fish getting to these vital headwaters. Sherry had mentioned the importance of cold water and getting fish up to that cold water in the headwaters is crucial. So culverts are too small. What happens is they end up hanging up in the air and the stream bed downstream gets washed away from the water blasting through it. And so what we're able to do is, is look at the areas that have the most habitat, have the worst culverts because they're undersized, and then not only fix access to great salmon spawning rearing habitat, but also make a safer road network, as, as you discussed just uh, a few weeks ago with your flooding in Maine special. So the road stream crossing survey, the data is available for all the public roads on the mainstream habitat viewer. And that really helps us and helps grantors, a lot of federal money coming to improve road crossings. And what's exciting is just these past few big storms that were amazing uh, as far as their scope and intensity. A lot of the culverts that were upgraded um, survived perfectly fine. And the ones that weren't upgraded that we thought should be, a lot of those blew out and created really disastrous situations for towns and the state. So it's fun work. Um, It's pretty (laughs) neat and sort of ties this all together. Well, Josh, thanks so much. And we have in the past done a whole main calling program on culverts, but I really appreciate you calling in and bringing us up to speed. That's Josh Wright with uh, the Nature Conservancy in Maine. Okay, so many calls. I'll get to as many as I can. Um, we'll go to Jim calling from Bar Harbor. Hi, Jim. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I've been uh, following uh, what's going on, on in uh, British Columbia where they have done away with um, planting hatchery fish in the rivers, and they've let the wild come back in. The one particular river up there, in, in uh, over there, and it had great success. In, in like four years, uh, the um, native salmon are back in that river. And I was wondering if you guys are following that model. Danielle? the big salmon river and the fundy salmon recovery project oh i'm not, I'm not sure what the name of the river that i can't recall the but what was happening was they figured that the the hatchery fish were contaminating the natives they were out eating all of the food and um and it prevented there was some cross breeding and stuff going on but they they uh, isolated one branch of a river and prevented somehow um, the uh, they stopped putting the hatchery fish in it and the wilds came back in about four years and replenished and were doing really well 
Okay. Um, yeah, Jim, do, do do either of you know about that project, Danielle or John? I don't know the specifics on the project, but I've heard similar things from out that way. Um, and, and fortunately, you know, you still have a lot of healthier populations of some of the Pacific salmon in places, and you still have massive hatchery programs largely to supplement the commercial fisheries. So you've got a lot of negative hatchery wild interactions happening. But when you have a place where you can segregate like that, it seems like you can then focus on the wild populations and exclude those hatchery fish. So I've heard of similar things happening in different places in BC and Alaska. All right, and Jim, that's, thanks you know, for calling. In. Yeah, go ahead, Danielle. Uh, with, with hatcheries, you know, hatcheries themselves are not black and white. There's a big difference between a large production hatchery, like John said, that's augmenting um, a commercial fishery and a conservation hatchery. And what we have here in Maine are small conservation hatchery programs that are dedicated to bringing back a species really from the brink of extinction. And so the hatchery rearing practices can be different. Um, fish are put into the rivers at different life stages that increase survival. And, and re the reality is that at this point in Maine, if we didn't have that conservation hatchery program, we wouldn't have salmon in Maine. We're going to go to Andy calling from Bath. Hi, Andy. Go ahead. Hi, thanks. Um, one of your guests mentioned earlier that the um, uh, global warming is a thing that we can't really control. So I just had a question about that. Uh, the Gulf of Maine uh, surface water is warming more rapidly than that of the uh, global ocean. Uh, how are you affecting the current and projected future Gulf of Maine water temperature and salmon rest, rest, restoration efforts? And will the yeah. projected future Gulf of Maine water temp, temp, temp temperatures even support a wild uh, yeah, good question, Andy. Sherry Venno was talking about the temperature of the river, but we're also looking at a warming Gulf of Maine. Danielle, what's its impact on wild Atlantic salmon? Well, the good news for Maine's Atlantic salmon is they don't spend much time at all in the Gulf of Maine. When they exit our rivers, they are on a beeline shot up to the Labrador Sea and then on to West Greenland, where they'll spend one to two years feeding before they come back to our rivers. And again, passing very quickly. Our um Studies with acoustic telemetry show that the salmon pass really quickly through those waters. The biggest concern might be if when they enter the water and enter the Gulf of Maine, if the food resources are there, if there's a mismatch between when they enter the Gulf of Maine and, and the food that they depend on, if it's if that shifts in time, that could be a worry. But really for our, our Maine Atlantic salmon, we're really looking temperature wise, really focusing on our river temperatures and making sure that we know where the cold water is, that we can protect the cold water or increase access for salmon to get to those cold water habitats so that they can survive the warm summer months here in our rivers. Andy, thanks for your call. Uh, an email here from Tim. The Duck Trap River in Waldo County has native wild Atlantic salmon. Over 90% of the Duck Trap watershed is under conservation easement. It shows that conservation practices can have a positive effect. And John, I see you nodding. Um, we'll go to Steve, who's calling from Deep River, Connecticut. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Hi. Thanks for hosting this conversation because education about wild Atlantic salmon is so important. Most New Englanders don't even know there's such a thing as Atlantic salmon. They just know about Chinooks and Cohos out west. But I, I want to make the point, of, uh, we've heard from a lot of people in Maine and what they're doing locally. I just want to make the point that this species is of national and even international importance. The people in Maine should be proud of, of 
of its salmon population and do what they can to recover it. But also the people of New England needs to rally around the efforts in Maine because we all had salmon historically and we lost it and we're not getting them back. And so we need to view the salmon of Maine as our resource as well. Just like, you know, there's, we all care about the polar bears, but they're only in Alaska, but that doesn't mean they're just an Alaskan resource. They're a national U.S. resource. And, and with salmon also, uh, the, world, the eyes of the world are on Maine because I serve um, as a U.S. commissioner to uh, a North Atlantic Salmon Conservation Organization. It's, a, it's an international fish commission that um, regulates harvest out in the ocean. But we also um, try to um, share information on conservation throughout the, the range of Atlantic salmon, because as, as it was said, Atlantic salmon is found on both sides of the ocean. And the people in NASCO are greatly interested in what's going on in Maine, because these folks that you're hearing from and your guests are um, fighting in the trenches to keep the most Steve. southern... Thank you so much. Thank you for calling and putting this in perspective. I really appreciate it. We have so many calls that I'm going to try and so many questions I want to um, move along um, because one of the big questions is um, I'm, I'm going to consolidate a few of these people asking about the status of court cases having to do with dams. Uh, one person, Ed, asking about the Brookfield Renewable um, Dam in Ellsworth, and somebody else asking about the Androscoggin River in Brunswick. So, John, if you could quickly bring us up to speed about where we are with some of these um, court cases and um, relicensing um, applications. Sure, and I'll try to do it very quickly. And I'm not involved in either Brunswick or the Union, but I know a little bit about them and some other ones. Essentially, on the Union River, there's been a long battle between the state of Maine and Brookfield Power about water quality certification of that project. And that case has gone through the courts a couple of times and is still pending there. Um, the comment about the Brunswick Dam, which is the first dam on the Androscoggin River, it that is in the very early stages of federal relicensing. Uh, which happens once every 40 to 50 years. And they'll be looking at major changes, hopefully the fish passage there to improve passage for salmon and other species. Arguably the, the biggest issues are the ones that we've heard in the news now for two or three years related to the four dams on the Kennebec River. Um, highly contentious what happens with those four dams moving forward. Um, there's also a Clean Water Act case um, that Brookfield is suing the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, also related to water quality issues at those dams. But for, for everyone in Maine, I mean, the biggest kind of regulatory process or step there is that one of those three dams is late in the relicensing process. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is going to release its draft environmental impact statement on that dam at the end of March. And along with that is looking basin wide. So it's also going to look at the three other dams in the same area that block all of the habitat in the Sandy River and the upper Kennebec River. 
And thank you for bringing us up to speed on that. And Danielle, to you, I'm going to send um, a question about the aquaculture. And we know that there was, you know, there are, especially in Down East Maine, places where there are big pens of farm salmon. And there was actually an incident where young salmon escaped just uh, a couple months ago. What was the impact of that on the wild salmon population? What is the concern? Um, so the, the key impact that we're worried about with an escape like that is that those fish may survive and swim up our rivers and mate with the wild Atlantic salmon, which could damage the genetics. Um, we are following that particular event. We, to this point, have not seen an returns of those fish to any of our rivers, um, but we will we'll continue to monitor that. Uh, but we do have some safeguards. When any Atlantic salmon are collected from the rivers to be taken to the conservation hatchery program to be used as broodstock, they are genetically screened. And the aquaculture industry is required to mark their fish with a genetic tag. So basically they've taken a genetic sample of all the broodstock. So when they put smolts out into those net pens, they're all identified by their genetics. And so when we have a fish that an aquaculture fish tend to look different than wild fish, they're, they're, their body shape is different, they're fatter, their fins are a little more worn. So when we have something that we're concerned might be an aquaculture fish, it gets pulled to the side, the genetics are run, we can identify it and make sure that it's not part of the broodstock program. And I should also say that every fish that does enter into the endangered Atlantic salmon broodstock program is genetically screened. So we can make sure to prevent any of those aquaculture genes from being propagated into the future in our, our Atlantic salmon. Um, aquaculture was listed in the re oh, recovery plan um, as, a, as a listing criteria, but because it was identified as a threat in that 2000 listing, there were a lot of mechanisms put in place to try to help protect Atlantic salmon, and it is much less of a threat today than it was in the year 2000. All right, and just uh, we just have a few seconds, but you, you are feeling at this point, you're still watching it, but feeling at this point fairly confident that that incident that just happened a couple months ago has not, um, that those juveniles have not made their way to Maine's rivers and, and that they would have by now if you, um, if you. It, they, it's possible they could come in in a year or two, but, you know, not beyond that. And we, we will be you know, continuing to monitor over the next two years. All right. Well, I want to thank you both for joining us today. The voice you just heard, Danielle Frechette, a marine resource scientist with the Maine Department of Marine Resources, and John Burroughs, Vice President of U.S. Operations for the Atlantic Salmon Federation. Today's sound engineer was George Thomas. Maine Calling is produced by Jonathan Smith and Cindy Hahn. Go to maincalling.org to find out about past shows, future shows, and to subscribe to Maine Calling's weekly newsletter. Tomorrow on the program, a collaborative novel, 14 Days. We'll talk to three acclaimed authors. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and you've been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.